Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nicholas Investment Insights. This week, we invite along a special guest to help us pave the pathway for the future of government bonds in portfolios. Government bonds have long been a mainstay in a properly balanced portfolio, but need to be employed with caution. As we've seen over the last few years, the cratering of central bank interest rates has seen some remarkable opportunity for those with a well-constructed portfolio. The issue now lies in the era of pent-up demand as people have endured lockdowns and travel bans that will now potentially put supply side under pressure, leading to inflation. Spikes in inflation lead to the prospect of rising central bank interest rates, which skewers existing bond prices and presents plenty of opportunity for bond traders to take advantage of an oversold market. To share her thoughts on the topics, today on the show we have Kate Samranway, the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Jamison Coote Bonds and a veteran of Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Kate has been a career fixed income portfolio manager with two large central banks in Asia. She specialises in high-grade bond portfolio management across all global regions. From 2007, Kate transitioned into portfolio management, focusing on high-grade bonds and managed fixed income portfolios throughout the global financial crisis. In 2010, she moved to Hong Kong to join the Hong Kong Monetary Authority as a portfolio manager, specialising in rates and cross-country bond allocation. Kate holds a Bachelor of Science in Economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Her formal training combined with her deep financial market experience provides significant fundamental and policy insights to the Jamison Coop bond investment process. Kate Samranway, welcome to Nucleus Investment Insights. Uh, thank you so much. Great to have you on board. Uh, here to share his thoughts as well on the future of fixed income and how they can be used in our portfolios. I'm also joined by Nucleus Wealth's Head of Investments, Damien Klassen. Hello to you, Damien. Hi, Jim. Great to have you on as well. And just a quick reminder before we get started, we're only 80 subscribers away from 3,000 on YouTube, and we have the goal of hitting that 3,000 mark before the new year. So if you haven't already, subscribe and click the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch, or of course, follow us on your preferred podcast platform. We also ask if you could take a moment to click like on the video now to help our show grow. So Kate, just to get our viewers up to speed, would you mind providing a brief background on Jamison Coote Bonds uh, yourself, uh, if you like, and also uh, why you've focused your career on the wonderful world of fixed interest? Okay, so Jamison Coote Bonds um, was founded probably about six to seven years ago by Charlie Jamison and Angus Coote. And I've known both of them for more than 10 years by now by uh, just trading in Australian fixed income markets. And we just kind of, through our career path, stumble upon this very small segment of finance world um, in tra trading and investing in government bonds. And we found a company with um, the premise that the, the Australian investors are very well versed in investing in equity um, mm -hmm. and lately investing in, in hybrid. However, because the... Uh, like historically, the government bond market in Australia has been very, very small. So there hasn't been a lot of um, depth of knowledge um, and understanding in government bonds for, for investors in Australia to invest in. 
However, there is a role of government bond in any portfolio, especially in uh, superannuation portfolio. Um, if we look at pension uh, world across the world, obviously they they have in, a lot of investment in equity, but a large portion of it is invested in duration to match the liability. And this is a part that we think we can offer our expertise to the Australian market. Um, to give access to, to, to this segment in the, the capital structure. So um, we think there are not a lot of like um, duration managers in Australia and we want to be a part of their solution. You know, one of their solid option for Australian investor to, to participate in. So the role of um, government bonds in portfolio if we come from portfolio with large equity holding, you, know, you have to think about different types of investments and having different roles in, in, your, in your portfolio. Uh, I, I wanna give some very basic um, how say analogy. For example, if you go play a game of golf, you don't hit um, from the tee with your putter, you hit it with your, your driver. And then as you progress near to the hole, uh, then you, you, you change your, your instrument and how to, you play your game. So we're mm. going to argue that you need like, um, like you compare, you know, your driver to equity uh, is going to get you very long, very far away, but you're very far from your goal. Once you get nearer to the hole, then you need something more finer. So think of this as a journey in your life or like um, you have large allocation to equity, you have some allocation to credit. And you want to have a small portion in government bond. Um, this is because, um, first of all, this is the last resort of capital preservation and liquidity when when things get really bad. The best example was probably global financial crisis. Um, mm. We did a study both. It's, it's quite interesting. Both S and P in the US and SX in Australia from peak to trough prior to the crisis to the trough of the crisis. It took, I think, almost four to five years from the trough for the equity to regain the previous peak value, to mm. regain the, the, all the drawdown. And in between these five years, if you had um, invested in government bonds before, you have, we have no problem at any day to tap into your capital. Um, so when you say that, you mean um, it's the highly liquid? It's so highly you, liquid. I mean, yeah. it's basically, if you look at the banks, so the APRA also requires all the banks to hold highly liquid assets. And in Australia specifically, this the highly liquid assets only refer to Australian Commonwealth government bonds or the state bonds, the semis, semi-government bonds. Um, so these are the bonds that, you know, when, when the crisis hit, you can tap access to liquidity in large size at any day. Mm. We're not arguing for, for anyone to allocate 100% to government bonds, but we are, we're arguing that perhaps it's, you know, it makes sense to allocate a small portion of your portfolio to be, you know, the last resort um of your holding um 
Yeah. So you certainly preaching to the convinced to the converted here we're, we're um you know we're certainly big fans of using uh using government bonds to to, to offset your equities and and it's along that same view as well that you know the corporate bonds don't give you that same exposure so that when um you know they, they obviously give you a higher yield than what you can get on the corp, uh, the government bonds but but in times of stress uh the corporate bonds that the yields tend to blow out as well at the same just just when you don't want them to well in other words they, they sell off at the same time the equity does is that what you say? It correlates yes. as opposed to what a bond should do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, but let's let's jump in, Kate, to to more about what we want to. What I guess the, the reason for having you here is we want to hear more about your your view on 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 economics and and um, uh, and what you're seeing in terms of markets, especially because I, I think it's um it's pretty traditional for uh for sort of observers of the market to to think that that. Uh, the people who follow bonds more closely are, are, are a lot closer aligned to um, to seeing how the economies are going and, and forecasting for, say, uh, inflation and 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 general economic growth, um, than than say the equity market that's tend to be more focused on on individual stories and sort of the um, le- less about the macro picture, more about the the uh, the detail. And so um, yes, yeah, so I want to sort of talk about the the coronavirus sort of COVID crisis. Um, just your views on on um, you know how much of the issue is supply side and how much is demand side from the economy and 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 sort of w- which is sort of the more important side at the moment is it is it the lack of is it companies going broke and and um, sort of lack of supply uh, or or issues with supply chains or is it more about um, you know, people being unemployed and and not having the um, not having the money and so demand being the the real issue? Well, if you look at um, economic data, the manu the Manufacturing PMI actually um, made almost back to 2019 level, which is very healthy level. Is the service side is the um, people going out and spend that is still lacking, and this is natural because with COVID, everyone stays home, and we're not going to have the large scale activities or the mobility that society used to for perhaps like another year. Um, the good news is the vaccine is coming. Uh, it will be slowly phased out. Uh, I expect that by the third quarter next year, a large percentage of population will be vaccinated and will create enough herd immunity so that our society can mobilize again and the service sector will bounce back. Now, if we talk about supply side, demand side, in this crisis that I have to say is that once in a hundred year kind of hundred years kind of crisis the government has stepped in they asked everyone to stay home over lockdown and they spend a lot on stimulus give, giving money to, to to people to stay home this is pretty much global so almost across all countries that we look at um saving rates of household sectors have actually risen quite substantially to the tune of, let's say, 15 to 18%. And when saving rates rise, the government offset that um, lack of investment by uh, borrowing in the economy and spending money, basically. Mm. So what we should see next year is by the third quarter, we should see people starting to spend. Uh, I think the term that you will hear a lot next year is pent up demand. 
people are dying to get out um, to to basically regain their normal life. I mean, we all have been in lockdown for so long. Like um, actually, Singapore just the government just basically gave Singaporeans vouchers to spend on local hotels. Last weekend, there were five hours queue just to check in. Hmm. So that's the sort of had a similar thing here in 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 Victoria with uh. Yeah, I think the website went down for uh, trying to give away vouchers for regional Victoria, and I think they've had, had to issue a whole bunch more now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing that we, we would expect to to see next year. And on the supply side, yes, we definitely have seen that um, because people are not going to work, so things are not being produced at the same speed. You know that that things are slowed down. So. However, because medical side is resolved now, it's just we're just waiting for time for, for this to happen. So what's likely to happen next year is perhaps, I mean, we can have global synchronized growth with both supply and demand um, coming back online. The issue with inflation is uh, gonna be quite a big debate next year. First of all, we have base effect from Inflation being destroyed through the pandemic in 2020 is going to come back next year just from base effect. What we don't know is how much inflation will rebound through this pent-up demand and the destruction of supply from companies going, you know, bankrupt, businesses closing. We don't know, like, because I think demand side there's so much saving in the household sector that the, the demand side will bounce back. Supply side, it takes a bit of time for, for supply to come back. So there's a bit of likelihood that inflation will come back. I'm gonna take a dip one step further. Once inflation comes back, how much of it is sustainable? Like we, we know that um, spot inflation will rise next year. We just don't know how much and how sustainable that inflation will be. So that's going to be like, I think, the big debate for 2021. Mm-hmm. And on top and of it, that, yeah. Sorry. So given that, given that you're, you're expecting it to be mainly on the services side um, and there's relatively high unemployment at the moment in, in a lot of countries, do you think that's just is uh, that's which seem to suggest that it's a it's a temporary thing? Um, the unemployment, I, you know, so yeah, so the, the two sides um, arguing about inflation, the ones arguing for high inflation would say, okay, because the supply cannot bounce back as fast as demand. However, there's a very valid argument on the other side, which is wage growth cannot, you know, because there's so much in unemployment, wage growth just cannot bounce back that much. And, and that's a very valid argument on both sides. It's just temporarily there will be like a bump in inflation. But over time, yes. because wage growth, because if you look back into, let's say, the 70s and the 80s, back then workers got unions. And when they are in unions, they have more negotiating power and they were able to negotiate for higher wage. But now, like that structure, been gone for a long time hence now workers are more on the part of accepting the wage that is offered to them 
So、mm-hmm. that is still pretty structural and has been, I think, pulling down wage over the years. We also have so let let's run through the structural、um, setup that has been dragging down inflation globally over the years. We have、um, wage wage growth that has been coming down. Like one, we have aging population.、Mm. Two, I think since. Two thousand oh one, when China joined WTO, then we have suddenly larger supply of labor in the world to produce goods. Right. Two, let's look at let's say the past ten years, the companies that have added to the productivity, the companies that changed the way we live. These have all been technology companies, or mo- mostly technology companies, and they require very little capital to to produce, you know,、um, big profits. <laughs> yeah, basically. So we just have too much capital chasing in return.、Um, what else? So, so let's say let's say we're running through the supply side because that's I guess、yeah. that's what we're thinking through is is let's say it's let's say it's a、um, you're an airline coming back on or you're you're a restaurant or whatever it is and so、um, so you, so you're an airline coming back on you've got a, a limited more limited number of planes now and, and staff、um, and so when when more people want to fly than what you have capacity for you'll bump up your prices. Um, to you know, to, to to bring back, and, and same with the restaurant, you'll you'll、um, you know more people want to book, and so you bump the prices up a little bit, which gets that inflation we were talking about. But、um, I don't have to go and pay my workers anything extra because、uh, I know there's more there's more stewardesses out there who who haven't got their jobs back yet, or or there's more、um, more waiters and wait waitresses that you can go back and 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 bring on, and because they're unemployed at the moment. You know, you're not going to be increasing your wage bill over time. So I guess, I guess that's what I'm thinking. Is it seems to me like a transient inflation、um, because it'll end up in company profits for for a little bit,、um, and, and the wage growth isn't actually going to come through in terms of okay, I need to actually start paying my my workers more money for for quite some time. Is that how you're seeing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that I think that's. How how it can play out next year, in the market though I feel like because like once we have a little bit of inflation, people get too excited, and、mm. people tend to, let's say, ah,、uh, trash talk bonds.、Mm. However,、yep. uh, every year, we tend to look for let's say a hundred basis point range in bonds bond yields to move. So, which, so which when you say hundred basis points, which um at, at the ten year bond rate? Yeah, let's say the ten year bond rate. Yep. Okay, so fifty fifty up and fifty down from a central. And what's your, and what's your central position for it then? Well, depending on which year, some some years. So last year we started with let's say U.S. Treasury. Hmm. Last year, at the beginning of the year, no no one would think. The direction of the rate is actually one way down because we started the year at the end of the year, just under two percent, and then it it fell like to thirty two basis point at the lowest.、Hmm. So this year, let's say if global synchronized growth 
comes back, we have a bit of inflation, we have a bit of rise in bond yields. However, since like if there's this structural thinking that wage growth will still be low, um, there's still too much capital chasing um, return. And there's a third factor, which is in throughout this whole pandemic thing, governments around the world added so much debt to the system. With the weight of the debt itself, bond yields cannot rise that much. Mm, okay. Right? So we're not we're not thinking that okay, we're gonna go like a few percentage. We're thinking the next direction is up, but it's gonna be up a little bit, which is a healthy adjustment in bond yields, actually. So, so so just on that, Kate, so do you see like so using this scenario, so we've got some supply side pressure pushing inflation up, whether it be sustainably or not. Um and then obviously we get a, a spike in bond yields, which means the price is falling. Do you see that as an opportunity to sort of get in as a, as a bond manager? Is this, you know, is, is there something uh, in that scenario that, that's enticing to you to sort of, you know, refill the portfolios or do you see, um, yeah, do you see opportunity? In, Definitely. In, in the yep. Definitely. When there's an adjustment in bond yields up, that's a very, very good time to go and, and buy your duration. Right. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So, so as long as and and I guess the the, the flip the flip side from a um, yeah, as, as you, the people you you said were concerned about inflation, there there are a bunch of people out there who are saying, you know, inflation's waiting. It's it's under your beds. It's ready to come out. Um, and and the, all this government money printing is is going to lead to dramatically higher levels of inflation. And and so they I guess they'd be saying, well, um. If bond yields start to rise, they'll be like it's it's the beginning. It's all begun. You know, bond yields are going back to five and six percent. Is what I guess is their argument. And it sounds like you're on the same side of the the, the boat as us in terms of saying no. We think it's transient. We think the inflation will will wash through, and then we'll be back to where we've been for the last ten years, which is um, yeah, not being able to generate inflation, where Japan's been for the last twenty five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's an opportunity at that stage. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with that statement. We, I think for investors, there will be noises coming out to Japan, a very bearish scenario for bond market. However, mm. we have to remember the structural reasons why bond yields are so low or have been falling for the past 30 years. And those structural reasons are still there. We still have aging population. We still have mountains of debt, both public and private debt. And... Um, well, because I guess it's that part where if interest rates were, you know, five, even five percent overnight, went went to five percent, that um that would have basically send, I don't know, thirty percent of Australia bankrupt, I suppose, of, the, <laughs> of, of people with their mortgages, and, and plus the plus you know local governments and and state governments and and all that type of stuff would be uh, turning back to the federal government to for, for handouts. Yeah, so so is that point, isn't it? That there's so much debt out there that um. If rates are going to rise, they need to rise really slowly to give these people t- a time to pay off the debts that are like there. A slow adjustment up in upward in bond yields is very healthy as economy heals. So we should we should be expecting that a spike mm. from let's say one percent to five percent is a. I I don't think it can happen when when 
debts are this large, actually. It's not going to be sustainable mm. for economies in, anywhere in, in the long run. Mm. And all the business of that is based on the fact that, you know, inflation can be tamed right away if the central banks decide to raise interest rate. And mm. I think central bankers around the world are very comfortable with the fact that if they raise interest rates, then they can cure inflation pretty effectively. However, on the and, flip and maybe side, the economy. <laughs> yeah, maybe the economy. Well, that, that's what Paul Walker kind of did like in during his time. And, and he got so much, I think, hate mails at that time. Um, but he stuck to his gun and he brought the interest rate down. So what, what we want to avoid is we want to avoid the economy getting to that stage by the central banks acknowledging that, okay, we cannot get it to th that far ahead. I'm going to bring back one other change this year, which is um, the, the Fed adopting average inflation targeting. And this is allowing um, inflation to rise above 2% for some time before they react. So if you look at the average inflation in the U.S. over the past, say, 10 to 20 years, the average is around only 1.7%. Spot inflation in the U.S. rarely rises above 2% sustainably for mm. a long period of time. So the Fed intends to let it rise above 2%. And from uh, what... Um, so. I, by the nature of my job, I listen to, to Fed speakers. The sense that I get from them is they're going to let this number rise above 2% for about one year. Mm. And then they're going to react, which means possibly they're going to stay on hold, you know, as they said, until 2022-23. And then they will react. And, and it, this kind of... In a way, it gives time for the economy to heal uh, from, from economic scarring from 2020. And hmm. I think what they're more afraid of, they, they, I think they opt for the solution because in the past, let's say since global financial crisis, they are always a bit kind of more afraid of deflation rather than inflation. Mm-hmm. So, so just on that, what are your thoughts on inflation-linked bonds? Do they have a position in your portfolio? Uh, sounds like they might in the future if you use them. Mm. We can invest in inflation-linked bonds. Um, we don't have a lot of allocation to that sector right now. Um, one of their characteristics of inflation in Australia itself, um, inflation-linked bond is still a very small part of the government issuance. And if you want to promise liquidity as um, our main offering, then th that's still tearing like government bond, like nominal government bonds still offer the best liquidity compared to inflation linked mm. bonds. So yeah, th there's some role in portfolio. And um, I think everyone can invest a little bit in some, but um, I think the majority of our portfolio will still continue to be nominal bonds. Mm. Right, so actually, just to get a little bit back to some of these thoughts you had as well. So, so you're looking for the longer term bond rates to rise as as inflation scares sort of take over. 
um, and then using that as an opportunity to, to get back in. At what stage? Um, so the the RBA um, has has anchored some of the shorter term bonds. Um, so I think they've spoken about the they've got a specific target for the three year, and they've got a a dollar target. I think for the five year that they're buying. Is that right? They have yield control basically in the three year part. Yeah. And the policy that they announced at the beginning of November is to allocate $100 billion to buy around a five to 10 year sector. It's yeah. just not an explicit target, but it is a quantity to promising to buy that sector of, of the market. Yes. So at what stage, I, I guess, where are you looking then? So if you had, um, if you had five year bonds, for example, or, or six year bonds, you, would you be concerned that in terms of those, in terms of the yield starting to, to increase there? Or do you think the, the RBA is going to be able to keep that sort of part of the market relatively anchored? So let's, so let's say we're talking about, you know, the 10-year the bond rate rising to, you know, 1.25, 1.5%. Are you expecting that the, the five-year is going to move um, up a bit as well? Or do you think that the RBA is going to be successful in terms of keeping that anchored? Mm. The interesting thing about the Australian physical market is that, um, well, there are the two things. One, from, from my experience, the 10-year point of Aussie bond yields are a combination of where 10-year U.S. Treasury trades, plus mm-hmm. the expectation between the Fed versus the RBA policy rate over the next few years, for example. Uh, for example, over the next year. So oftentimes we use like one year short-term rate expectation to compare relative path, who's going to be more dovish or more hawkish. And uh, that that dictates the direction of where spread would trade um, over the next, let's say, period. So I don't think RBA has control over where U.S. Treasury trades. However, the spread between the Australian bond yields and U.S. Treasury, they can influence it actually, not really by the quantity of the bonds they buy, but by communicating their relative dovishness compared to the Federal Reserve's path. To put it into easy term, if the Fed say the Fed is going to stay on hold until 2022, RBA can, can you know, have a lower bond, can achieve lower 10-year bond yield by communicating that, okay, we're going to stay on hold two years longer than the Fed. I think that's a bit more effective. Um, the second part of this is also the quantity of the bonds that they own. In Australia itself, futures market is um, it's not fiscal bond settlement. You don't have to own bonds to, to, you don't have to deliver bonds basically if you're gonna buy or sell the futures. Whereas in the US or in Japan, um, bond, the futures market requires fiscal settlement. So 
if you right. sell bond, if you short bond, then you really have to deliver the bond. So you have to go like you know, buy bonds in the market and deliver it if you, you know, have been and selling futures. So that's not a feature of the Australian market. Yeah. So, so that that's the nature of the, it, it, which it, it served the purpose of the market for, for the past, I think, you know, 10, 20 years, because in, in the past, the bond market size has been quite small, but because the future market doesn't require fiscal settlement, um, it promotes the, um, the sort of liquidity. It promotes more market participants um, that you know who don't really have to go and buy bonds and to to settle in the market. So let's bring it back to today. If you don't need to really own fiscal bond to settle in the market. People who, who can affect the price of the bond via future mm. can be anyone who has enough balance sheet to, to move the price at the margin. Mm. So um, I'm a little bit skeptical on, on the quantity of ownership of the bond in that particular segment. Um, it's not the first time that a big hedge fund has one over a central bank, if I can refer to Josh Soros and Bank of England. Um, so I, I think RBA can utilize more forward uh, guidance on, on the path of rates. Right. Okay. So, so, so let me get this right. So, so the three year they've got, they've basically, they've got an explicit target. So yeah. you're not expecting that to, you don't expect them to lose control of that though, are you? Well, if they especially say especially say they're not going to raise rate for two, three years, that that is pretty yeah. credible. Yeah, and what, they've said what, they've said as well that they've got a target of what is it, twenty five basis points that they're going to they're going to keep buying bonds. They're basically going to buy an unlimited number of bonds to get it back to that level. Anyway, is, is that right? Yeah. So, I I think what what affects bond yield kind. More is also the um, the intention of the central bank to to be credible on on their interest rate path. So so for us, like we have um, we we can model, let's say, our assumption on where the central bank will move their their interest rate policy, and if RBA is very firm and credible on not moving interest rate target, which at the moment is about 10 basis point to for the next three years, then the three year point will not move. Yep. Until let's say we get nearer to year 2022-23, then just because we're moving a long time and once we get 2022, the three year point will naturally have like a upward bias because we're going to discount cash flow from 2023, 24, 25. Yep. yep. So, okay. so nearer so, that so, time, RBA will have to adapt their communication basically. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So, so let me get this right. So we're going 10 year bonds up, whatever, 50 basis points or something like that, or in that, in that ballpark, depending upon you know how good the economic news is and everything like that. The, the three year stays pretty pinned. Um, this is for next year, and then the five-year um, probably does start moving a little bit because um, 
yeah, you don't think the government's got as much control. The central bank's got as much control over that as as they as they might have, even though they've. I guess the money they've said they're going to spend isn't isn't wouldn't be enough to um to stop the yields from from moving. Is that a good summary? Yeah, I think that that's a, that sounds about right. Okay, excellent. So, um, okay, so let's let's change tack a little bit and have a talk uh, a little bit more about the um, about the US. So, so Janet Yellen um, as Treasury uh, Secretary of the Treasury, what, what do you think that means in terms of how um, you know the relative importance of fiscal policy versus monetary policy, and and, and what are what are the benefits, I guess, um, or, or or detriments from from the uh, from having you know an ex um, central banker running your uh, your fiscal policy <laughs> um i think the last time that i heard yellen spoke um throughout this, this crisis her, her main point was that the fed could have been clearer and more that provided like a more definite path of support throughout the years um she also thinks that I think I think the positive thing about having such a veteran to to run the treasury is to I think she understands that we get to the point where the Fed can can provide the stimulus, but it's not going to add too much difference to to the economy, and yes. the big help will come from the physical side. And what uh, her task is really from now until let's say the third or the fourth quarter next year to provide the sort of fiscal support that will enable their, the economy to recover in a, in a smooth path. I think she fully understands all this. The, the detriment I think might have been like, I think people might suspect whether she will be too dovish. She will let, she will overstimulate the economy um in my i mean i got to say that when when she became the federal research chairman this has been the perception all along and i i do think that she she can be she can communicate also when things um get overheated However, we never get to see that side of her throughout her, I think, tenure at the Federal Reserve, just because during that time, you know, we're, we're in a healing phase of the economy. She's actually the chairwoman who, you know, introduced balance sheet reduction on plan, introduced forward guidance, introduced the dot plot. Um, she also raise interest rate. So I think there's a lot of experiences going for her. And One thing I have to say- the economy run hot as well? Um, I don't think that that's entirely up to Yellen. I think that's more of um, one, what President Biden wants to do. Oh, no, it's just, oh, sorry, I was just saying, Janet Yellen was the one who sort of first spoke about letting the economy run hot to, to sort of offset some of the weaker the weaker periods as well. Mm. I think that, that that fits into the Fed the Fed's current policy of average inflation target. Yes. So by, mm. by letting it run hot temporarily, we're not talking about. Ho hopefully, I mean this is the first time that we will 
get a different mode of Federal Reserve. But I think they understand that um, they don't want runaway inflation in the tune of 4 to 5%, but they would like inflation to be above 2% maybe for a year, and then they can bring it down a little bit. I think they have a greater confidence in their ability to bring down inflation than the ability to to rescue inflation out of zero. It's very hard to to bring economy out of deflation. Yes. But I, I want okay, to so... finish my point on okay. um, overstimulated economy. Mm. I think it if you want to overestimate the economy through the fiscal side, I think it is not entirely up to a Yellen. Um, it's up to the the Congress and the Congress, specifically the Senate, which we don't know the result yet because uh, we have the last two seats to be decided on January the fifth in mm. in like two weeks. Um, that's how how thin the margin is. So the Republican needs to win one seat. Yeah. So so it seems, then, it seems to me that um you know, the odds are basically given people are voting for two Republicans you know, or two Republicans or two Democrats it's 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 sort of the odds of it being split seems to be a little unlikely to me. It seems to be more likely to go both to one or both to the other. Um and then the second part is um I've got no idea whether um there's going to be a bunch of Trump supporters who don't turn up now because he's not there to vote for, but there's also going to be a bunch of people who were, were against Trump who don't turn up to vote because he's not there anymore. Um, <laughs> and, and what that what that actually does, who's, you know, which, which one of them, because the turnout was so huge for the, the election, I'm assuming the turnout's going to be a lot smaller. Um, I don't know if you've seen what, what the best analysis you've seen out there is in terms of how big the drop-off's going to be and, and who's going to be dropping off more. Um. You know, the, the, the voters turned out in 2020 U.S. election was absolutely mind-boggling. Mm. Um, I think it depends on how much they campaign in, in Georgia. And both parties realize how important this election is. I would say, like I, you know, the drop in, in turns out whether Trump is there or not, both sides are valid. I would say that I don't think Trump will really disappear from from the media. Uh, he may lose presidency, but he loves Twitter and he loves having a platform to communicate his view. So now that he's actually quite free from having presidential duty, I don't think he will really like disappear into quietness. And and most presidencies that retire from the office, I think historically, like both of all of them try to commercialize themselves somehow, except President Bush, because I think President Bush is already quite wealthy. Clinton tried to have a foundation. Um, they found the Clinton Foundation, the Obamas wrote books. President Trump, I think he it's likely to to stay on media, and um, <laughs> he will continue to kind of sort of. I don't think he will be quiet. That he will continue to make noises and criticize uh, the Biden administration, and there's such mm. a huge following of President Trump within the Republican Party that um, it can continue on. 
beyond mm. even beyond the Georgia election. Yeah, no, okay. that's a uh, that's a likely, and that's probably a reason why. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that his um, he would be predisposed to, uh, to to less stimulus rather than more stimulus. Given, I guess, one thing is given the way uh, I guess the Republicans reacted post the financial crisis, where they were very keen to have less stimulus, and whether that was a disingenuous move because they thought that that, that would mean the economy would do worse and they'd be able to get in next, or whether they genuinely believed. That you know, there's stimulus. It's hard to tell, but but it would seem to be that um, that would be what they would be trying to do this time as well. Is is less fiscal stimulus, so creating economic pain essentially because they're not in anymore. Yeah, yeah, whether, yeah. That, well, whether whether it's whether they that's what they truly believe or whether it's you know disingenuous. Who knows? But let's. Yeah. I guess that's is is that what you'd say the your thoughts are as well. Yeah, so like historically, if we have split government, um, usually that's, that's pretty good in terms of um, managing the government finance and we're going to have a bit less stimulus. But I don't think it's going to be in a tune that will hurt the economy. It's still going to be enough to, to carry the economy forward. The mm. kind of, if, if we happen to have like a Democrat Congress, Democratic Congress, uh, who, then the tune of spending that the Biden administration dreams of doing is, it can be in the tune of three to four trillion dollars over five, mm. over four to five years, which is huge. Like this is even, you know, when 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 President Trump suspends, I think his package in two thousand sixteen is one to two trillion over ten years, so. This is hugely stimulative. Like Biden has a dream of being FDR, of giving the New Deal. So, yep. So that's gonna, that that is a big big factor that will change change our assumptions quite a bit. Right. So yeah. okay. So 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 that's that's where I was leading to with this. So so let's say I think at the betting markets basically going seventy percent or maybe maybe two thirds two thirds to the Republicans getting it and getting control and and one third to the the Democrats getting control. If if the Democrats do get control, um, it sounds like you'll be revising upwards your inflation expectations pretty quickly, and then I guess your your bond targets bond your targets before you'd want to start buying again. Is that yeah. Right? Yeah, I think that would fit the bill. Mm. And so, just be a, a uh, bit more patient. Um. Mm. Okay. Yes, yes. Something certainly something to uh, something to think about. Um, so on that, uh, so on that same part, I guess. Um, so there's been a lot of stuff about whether um, the gig economy is sort of affecting and. and and the idea that a lot of people working a lot more part-time is sort of affecting um, unemployment statistics around the world and about whether um, you know, underemployment is, is a better measure and um, whether if the focus is too much on, on unemployment that, um, that what, what you might find is that you, you're exiting your stimulus too early. I'd just be interested at seeing, you know, um, you know they, they had the, uh, was it the non, the, the non, accelerating inflation rate? Nairu. 
No roo. Yes, we got that. Uh, no, so basically, what how how low can unemployment get for anyone listeners? Just how low can unemployment get before it starts causing inflation? And and I guess uh, over the last sort of ten fifteen years, that number just keeps coming down and down and down as as um, everyone thinks, oh look, yeah, whatever, it's six percent, and then now no, it's five percent, and it's four percent, and and so I guess the question is, um, do you think that it's do you think that's as as simple as um, you know that that un- unemployment's not being measured correctly or do you think there is a, a level at where or where do you think the level is I suppose and, and should we be using underemployment rather than rather than unemployment so Nairu is not a measurable concept it, it is like a theoretical concept where the economy reaches full employment without creating inflationary pleasure pressure and it is observed, but it cannot be calculated, basically. And obviously, it changes over time. Same, same as potential growth. Like, um, you don't know where it is, but you kind of know afterwards, after the fact, basically. I think what what central bankers or policymakers do is that they, they look at both. All unemployment rates, underemployment rates and, and inflation all together and make judgment as the time comes. So I'm gonna I cannot say that, you know, one number, one measure of, of unemployment can replace the other, but you just have to use all these data together. Mm. Um okay so jumping Again, a diff- to a different track, we've sort of been looking um, at the uh, at the term funding facility in, in Australia, and uh, so just for any for, for any listeners, it's basically a, a, a mechanism by whereby the, the the RBA lends directly to banks um, for either business loans or, or mortgages, and they on a, on the three year rates, and they'll loan at um, uh, is it point one now? I think we'll start at point two five, and now it's point one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess for us, that sort of means that in terms of the economic future, that seems to be the more important rate than, than the overnight rate. I don't know whether you have similar thoughts or, or different thoughts. Um, so this matters when you look at the overall composition of um, the bank's funding sources. So really that the major source of funding of the banks in australia i think 50 to 55 to almost 60 percent comes from deposits and then the rest comes from short-term debt and long-term debt i think term facility will fall under short-term debt which is i think 15 to 18 percent around the same amount as long-term debt i think it's it adds to the funding of the banks at the margin, but it's not going to be changing big picture for for the composition of the, the funding for the banks. Mm, but in terms of the rate, though, um, I guess what I'm thinking is uh, you know, the standard variable rates haven't moved very far, but the three-year rates have, have dramatically decreased over the last year. And so for anyone getting a mortgage 
um, it just means that getting a three year, you know, they can get something with a with a one in front of it now, or definitely definitely a two in front of it, whereas that's not the case for a standard variable rate. Right. Yeah. So if you look at the net interest margin at the bank, net net interest margin at the bank has been like right now it's just over two percent. Yep. So. Like I think you are the question is really about passing through like in terms of the RBA's policy rate to to the mortgage borrowers. Is that what you're yeah, trying to get to? Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is um you know what what the RBA does with their with so so from a from a the average person out there who's looking to get a small business loan or looking to get a home loan. Um, the standard variable rate, what the RBA does with the standard variable rate hasn't mattered this year as much as what it, what they've been doing with a term funding facility. Mm, okay. Um... It, it, okay, if you, if you, if you, do you want us to cut this bit out? We can, I'm happy to cut this bit yeah, out if you don't want to comment right. on it. That's okay. Up, up to you. Yeah, so okay, for for this bit, I think it asks you have to look at the bank's funding as a whole, as in deposit rate, short term funding, and a long term funding. I think the the point that I want to make is all all these rates have come down absolute level, whereas the bank inter- net interest margin has narrowed a little bit, but it's not that much. So basically, banks have maintained their profitability throughout the year. Mm. Like I hear you, the standard variable rates have not changed that much. Um, I think what I want to say is the problem with getting loans on these days is more like um how the banks want to make how what's the word um. The easiness the of like, getting loan from the bank. Yeah, it's assessment, credit, credit worthy. Yes. Credit worthiness, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Um, the other one, so just cognizant of your time, and thanks thanks for you know sticking with us for, for this. Um, negative interest rates, you're thinking they're likely in Australia, not likely in Australia? Mm, I think there's, it's been great debate between, I think, Europe and the US. Um, on the effectiveness of negative interest rates. I want to take it all the way back to 2014 when Draghi was introducing negative interest rate. He was saying at the time in, in, in his speeches that, you know, the Fed went to zero and it took them, let's say, seven years to stay at zero policy rate before they were able to, you know, take the stimulus away. But Draghi at the time said that he's going to have implement negative interest rate as an accelerator so that European economy can come out uh, faster than the Fed, basically. Now, in 2020, that is not what happened, right? Like, Mm. we're still deeper into negative rate, but yes, we, we did just have a pandemic, one in a hundred years kind of pandemic. No central bank who's gone into negative territory has 
you know, come out positive again. I think the only exception is Wix Bank, who took it from negative to zero. Um, the rest have been stuck at a different levels of negative rates for, for some time. Like, if I look at the ECB paper, they argue that negative rate has um, attributed positively to the economy because they look at the loan demand and the loan growth numbers are very healthy. Um, they cushion the bank's net interest margin by implementing tiering. There's also benefits of um, the assets in on the bank's balance sheet, such as the bonds that they hold, that the level of use have come down so much. Net net, all these factors uh, is about ten basis point in net interest margin. All these factors combined together. And recently, I think the Fed published. Um, a paper in September 2019 looking at the effectiveness of negative rates. Yes, it lowers net interest margin, especially if you know the banks cannot implement negative rate to depositors. Um, and the Fed paper argues that it's not as effective as when interest rates are positive. So, however, on balance. Japan and Europe have managed better than expectation um, by giving liquidity to the banks at you know attractive rate basically. So yeah. all in. You give me I a think... bit of an economist answer here. You know, you said on one <laughs> hand yes, and on the other hand, uh, the other hand no, and so. <laughs> yeah, I think what, so the... what what I'm trying to say, I guess, is. I, I'm not really sure because if you look at Draghi's argument, he say mm. with negative rate, we're going to come out of this, we're going to recover faster and coming out stronger yeah. than the US, but it has not happened. And no. every central bank who's gone into negative rate has been stuck in negative rate. Yeah. And I guess, I guess the other I, argument though sure is that dem the demographics are worse in, in Europe and the economy is not as uh, not as flexible and a few other factors as well. It's probably... Yeah, yeah. It's, hard, it's hard to know the counterfactual, isn't it? It's hard to say, well, if, so, if he didn't do negative rates, maybe it would have been worse than what it is now. It's very, yeah. Maybe. But I think yeah. w one point that I think people don't talk about a lot is the, the factor of time. Because the factor of time heals the balance sheet. Like It takes a bit of time to heal the, the damaged balance sheet. Yeah. But once if, if you don't have healed, deflation. <laughs> if you don't have deflation, yes. <laughs> If you've got deflation, time just makes it worse. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah but if you look at Japan, Japan has never gone under minus 10. Mm. And I don't think culturally or like demographically, uh, the banks finance themselves by having huge deposit base. These, these are all like demographically, we, they have aging population whose wealth is a lot tied to deposits. So they cannot yep. like implement negative rates too much. So I think the social contract in, in, in Japan doesn't really allow for a hugely negative rate. I think it's experimented. They really had to do the time to prevent yen from 
appreciating too much against euro and US dollar. But now the yen is stable, I think Japan, I just, I just think they don't want to change things too much. So coming back to Australia, I think you really have to, I think the central bank has to make a decision like culturally what, what is acceptable. Yeah. The banks rely and on. It's safe, say, it's safe to say that at the moment the central bank said no, they won't. They won't have negative rates. So yeah, it's, it's going to take a fair bit, is what it sounds like. Well, the thing is, the RBA has said so many things that they wouldn't do, but they end up doing it anyway. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but it takes them, but it takes them a while. Yeah, a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, if you look at RBN, that um, they have been talking about implementing negative rate for for i think the past since march or april hmm. boc boe bank of england also talking talked about negative rate but once they heard of the vaccine then they both have become non-committal so i think the credibility lies on really believing in you know one set of belief like i, I are you going to believe in just non non negative near zero for a long long time like the fed let's say from 2008 until 2015 or you know are we going to experiment with negative rates and i think it's not just i mean in my humble opinion it's not just the economy it's just how it affects society how it affects savers and the aid pensioners who may not have the time to to chase assets like in equity because they, they, they really need money for, for their retirement uh very good all right uh, any more questions damien or we can no we might, we might let uh let kate go there thank thanks heaps for that kate that was um yeah that's been very useful yeah fantastic and Thanks. Yeah, yeah, great to have you on the show, and, and thanks for taking some time from no doubt a, a busy day to share your thoughts with us and, uh, and answer all our our tough and uh, tough questions. Um, would you mind just sharing with our audience, uh, if you like, of course, uh, just ways they can follow your work and and obviously the work of Jamison Coot Bonds. Our website is jamisoncootbonds.com.au. Viewers can subscribe to receive our regular insights and market commentaries here. You can search for Jamison Coot Bonds on livewidemarkets.com and click follow on my profile to connect with me and my content. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn by searching Jamison Coot Bonds and click follow. We are active on LinkedIn and provide market insights, education, performance updates, and video. There are two easy ways to invest with us. Firstly, through direct application via the forms available on our website or through a range of supporting investment platforms listed on our website under the invest with us section this is the same process for our three funds the domestic high-grade bond fund our global high-grade bond funds and then our latest fund the global absolute return high-grade bond fund thank you excellent yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, no, thanks again for your time. And, um, yeah, we really look forward to getting you back on the show sometime soon, Kate. All the best. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks to all of those who have watched today for another great episode. I hope you've taken away some great ideas. And if you haven't already, feel free to click like on the video to give us some feedback. 
If you'd like to see more of our content, head on over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content to stay up to date on news from us, follow us on social media. And finally, if you know anyone who'd get something out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. Thanks again for tuning in from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.